Please read with me. First Samuel 16, 1 through 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected you, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send to you Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I shall show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded, and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably I come to sacrifice to the Lord. Peaceably I come. And he consecrated his sons and Jesse and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Aminadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel went then Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all your sons? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him. Now he was ruddy, and had beautiful eyes, and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took on the horn of oil, and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we thank you for the opportunity to gather as a body of believers on this Sunday morning transforming a high school into a sanctuary, a place that exalts your name. Lord, we thank you for your word. And so we ask that as we go to the text today that, uh, Lord, you would speak to us through your word, challenge us, exhort, encourage, as you promise you will do. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in 1 Samuel, not Jude, not 1st or 2nd Peter, 1 Samuel 16, if you would turn there. Just a reminder as well that next week there's a baptism class at 9, and I have several who are interested in participating in believer's baptism. If you're interested in the subject or perhaps want to follow in that obedience, we'd love to have you join us. We're going to be meeting in this hallway right out here at 9 o'clock next week. Favorite commercials of recent, uh, it's a couple years now, was the AT&T commercial 
where, you know, they're trying to argue that a, a, a quasi-network isn't good. Okay is not acceptable. And if you remember the scene, this man is on his hospital bed with his wife and child, and the nurse is sitting there, and he goes, well, do you know Dr. Francis? And she goes, yeah, he's okay. And he goes, just okay? And then just as you hear that, you, you know the commercial? I'm getting blank stares. Dr. Francis yells down the hallway, hey, guess who just got reinstated? And so he comes into the room, and he goes, you've been reinstated? He goes, yeah. He goes, you nervous? The doctor asks of the patient, and he goes, yeah, I'm nervous. He goes, me too. And you're going, this is not good. This is not a good first impression. And you only have one chance for a first impression, don't you? And that's often the one that's most lasting. 1 Samuel 16 is about first impressions. And we're going to look at that as we go to the text. And again, 1 Samuel 16. But before we do, I think it's vital that we understand a little bit about 1 and 2 Samuel. They are what we call historical books. They are narratives. And that's important. Uh, because when you're looking at a narrative, and I think Dr. Chisholm, uh, Old Testament professor that I had at Dallas, says there's two things you need to do when you approach a narrative, a historical book in the scriptures. He says the first question you need to ask is how is God revealing himself? And the second question is how does God relate to the people in that passage? So those are the two things we're going to ask as we go through the life of David. We're going to be looking at several scenes from First and Second Samuel and even in Chronicles before we're done at, by the end of the summer. And I'm excited about this study. But First Samuel is, is really a transition. We've ended the era of the judges. And if you remember the time of the judges in the life of Israel, it's, it's like a roller coaster ride. One minute they're on fire for God under a, a judge and then there's a moral failure and now they're in the pits and, and, and on it goes. It's just this vicious cycle. It actually spirals downward through judges. By the time you get to the end of judges, things are not good. And we start in 1 Samuel, and the people, that is the Israelites, said, enough, we want a king, just like everybody else that we see. Which is, think about this, is uh, an abomination. Uh, here is God serving as their king, and they're saying, we don't want you, we want to be like the rest of those around us. And God gives them a king, and so this book is a transition into a monarchy. It's also... Here in Judges, we have the tribes all vying a little bit for their own power. The, the empire is com consolidated. We have, have a kingdom. We move from a tabernacle eventually to a temple. So first, second temp, uh, Samuel, they're vital in understanding the life of Israel. There are three key players in first and second Samuel. We've just mentioned one, Samuel. Uh, he is the judge slash prophet. There's Saul. He's the first king, and the people love him, but we'll see God has some other opinions about him. And the third is David. David is the major focus of First and Second Samuel, both literarily and historically. God's going to make a covenant with David in Second Samuel that will set the course of action, and we'll talk a little bit about that. One Jewish scholar says that David is the most human character of the Bible. When you think about it, there is more chapters devoted to David than any other Old Testament character. There are over a thousand references to David just in the Old Testament, 
and there are 54 references to David in the New. In fact, David, apart from Christ, is the most cited character in Scripture uh, in, the, in the New Testament as well when it comes to Old Testament characters. Well, let's come back to first impressions. Israel has selected a king, and we know how they selected their king, Saul. If you remember the story, he was a man's man. He would have been featured on the front of GQ. He was attractive. He was athletic. He had the six-pack. He had everything. You know, this was the guy. He was perfect. In fact, we're told that he stood ahead above all the other men. So, I mean, you spotted Saul a mile away. And 1 Samuel, look how it closes in 1 Samuel 15 before we jump into 16. It says here, however, Samuel's mourning for Saul, but the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Wow. So here's this guy, humanly speaking, first impressions, he's the king. This is great. And God is not happy. In fact, we see here God rejects him. That's the first impression. And so we, our scene picks up in 16.1. And the Lord said to Samuel, how long do you intend to mourn? This phrase, how long do you intend to mourn, isn't just weepy, weepy. This isn't the end of a Hallmark movie. No. Maybe it's the middle of the Hallmark movie. I don't know. Right? No, this is, this is in reference to someone who has died. And it usually entails this type of mourning, this term here, is referring to a physical outward appearance. In other words, there's ashes that are thrown over the head. There's sackcloth that is worn. Samuel is in the pits of despair over what has just transpired to Saul. And this mourning could last seven days. It could last weeks. It could last months. It could last years. And for some, it lasted to the, to the day the mourner died. Samuel is mourning. Notice how he, he it ended in verse 15. He's mourned for Saul. And now we see him continuing to mourn. And the Lord says, how long? And you got to ask why. Why is Samuel mourning? Well, I think there are three reasons. Number one, Samuel had served as Saul's spiritual mentor. He had invested much into Saul. You only need to read the first 15 chapters to see that, or at least a portion of those 15. He cared deeply for Saul. That's, that's very evident. He, he grieves over Saul's demise. But I think there's a second reason why Samuel is grieving, and that is Samuel cared about the Israelites. He was saddened that once again, we enter into another dark moment in the history of God's people. Remember, he just came out of the time of the judges. And everything, all hopes were hung on this political figure, Saul, and it's come crashing down. And there's a third. I didn't see this by commentaries, so don't shoot me on this one, but I, I think there's a third element here of why Samuel is mourning. When God's people back in 1 Samuel 8 want a king, why? What do they tell Samuel? Samuel, your sons are unfit to lead us spiritually. Right to the heart. Remember Samuel's protege, Eli? 
Eli's sons blew it. So bad that eventually, we know Eli dies from the news of what's happened. And here, another great man of the faith, Samuel, and we're told in 1 Samuel 8, the people wanted a king because one, Samuel was too old to continue to lead them, and his sons were unfit, unrighteous. Wow. And they wanted a king like other nations. So Samuel's mourning. There's two very important points here, I think, as we look at God's reaction to Samuel. One is... There's a time to mourn and there's a time to move forward. Here is the problem with the question of how long. In fact, the question how long are you going to keep doing this? The Lord asked this several times throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. The first time is with Pharaoh. How long are you going to harden your heart? He asked it of the Israelites in the wilderness. How long are you going to grumble against me? And it's asked in Jeremiah of the people, how long will you forsake me? In other words, when the Lord asks Samuel this question, it is one of a reprimand. How dare you keep mourning someone whom I've already rejected? The Lord is done. There's no negotiations there's no time to lick one's wounds. It's time to move forward. Samuel was mourning over a situation, and in, in, we see that again in, in the 15. He's still mourning. And sadly, we all know believers who are still wallowing in the past, whether it's the failure of an admired leader, a ministry that imploded, or being put through the ringer on no fault of their own, and the individual cannot move forward. I have a close friend. 15 years ago, his ministry came crashing down. No circumstances, faults of his own. But even now, when he calls, I know I'm going to get a rehearsing of what occurred. Or the couple that comes to the church. They were burnt in the previous church. And the thought of participating in a new ministry? No way. I'll warm the pew, but don't ask me. I'm ho- I was burnt before. I cannot get hurt again. They need to join Queen Elsa. Let it go, let it go, you know. It's, it's time to move on. Now, I, I grant you there's a time to mourn, and there's a time that we need to heal. There's no doubt about that. But Samuel is mourning. He's mourning, and he's mourning. The whaties, the coodies, the woodies. He needs to let it go. There is ministry to be done, Samuel. Stop licking the wounds. Stop wallowing in the past. It's time to move forward. The Lord doesn't have time, I will argue, for such behavior, nor should we. I was reading The Surety of the Cross by Horatio Bonar this week. He makes this statement, and it is profound. He says, The road to the kingdom is not so pleasant and comfortable and easy and flowery as many dream. It's not a bright, sunny avenue of palms. It's not paved with triumph, though it is an end is victory. The termination is glory, honor, and immortality. But the way, well, there's thorn in the flesh, the sackcloth, and the cross. Recompense later, but labor here. Rest later, but weariness here. Joy and security later, but here endurance and watchfulness. The race, the battle, the burden, the stumbling block, the oftentimes the heavy heart. 
C.S. Lewis stated it well. If you want a religion to make you feel comfortable, I certainly do not recommend Christianity. <laughs> Samuel, stop mourning over the past. It's done. Let's move forward. We have a ministry to do. And it's a good reminder to all of us, isn't it? It's convicting. So we'll move on. <laughs> Thankfully, how does Samuel respond? The text tells us, right? He's, he, first of all, the Lord says, fill your horn with olive oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse and Bethlehem for I've selected a king for myself among the people. And it says that Samuel says, let's go. Can you imagine if he didn't go? If he continued to wallow in the self-pity, you know, the Kleenex box by his uh, bed? He would have forfeited the opportunity to anoint the greatest king in Israel's history and the forefather of the Messiah. Wow. So the first important lesson is here in this text, there's a time to mourn. Second, the Lord sometimes actively undermines the effectiveness of those whom he rejects. Listen carefully to this. This is where some people might get a little uneasy. But the Lord sometimes actively undermines the effectiveness of those whom he rejects. We're going to see this with Saul. In fact, you want to, as we go through this study, spend some time, put David over here, Saul over here, and compare and contrast them. It's huge. Romans 1, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a rep, rep, or depraved mind to do what should not be done. Saul is not innocent. <laughs> no, 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 no. If we had time, we could develop 1 Samuel 15, where he is blatant against Samuel. He lies. He tries to, to sugarcoat it. No, no, no. And in fact, the text tells us Saul has rejected the Lord and his word. And consequently, Yahweh rejects him. Remember the pronoun. In fact, look at this. Notice the pronoun in verse 1. I am sending you to Jesse. I have selected a king for whom? Israel? No, myself. That's the Lord speaking. In 1 Samuel 12, when they tell Samuel they want a king, it says, the king whom you have chosen, Samuel tells them, for whom you have asked here is your king. This time, God's picking the king. And he's picking someone that he wants, not whom they want. And in first impressions, the Lord's not concerned about that. He's concerned about something else, which, which we'll get to. Of course, the question is, how does God choose people? How does he select? First Corinthians 1, Paul tells us, think about the circumstances of your call, brothers and sisters. The Apostle Paul writes, not many were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were born to privileged position. But God chose what the world thinks foolish to shame the wise. And God chose what the world thinks weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, what is regarded as nothing to set aside what is regarded as something so that no one can boast in his presence. I see a lot of young people out here, and that is dynamite. Let me ask you, well, let me challenge you with something. The Lord is looking for individuals, not just young, but old as well. And what is he looking for? Let me give you three. The Lord is looking for a person who's passionate about Christ. 
passionate about the things of the Lord. Second Chronicles 16, it says, certainly the Lord watches the whole earth. You got this, right? It's a satellite view. He's seeing it all. Carefully, it says, and he's ready to strengthen those who are devoted to him. So first thing is that a person who is passionate about Christ. Secondly, the Lord is looking for a person who's faithful to the task. We're going to get to this, but little young David is where? He's not sipping, you know, orange juice at the dinner table. He is out tending the sheep. Psalm 78, it says, He, the Lord, chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep folds. David is faithfully serving. He's faithful to the task. And here's a third. When the Lord chooses someone, he's looking for a person of character. Psalm 78 goes on to state, He, the Lord, took David away from following the mother sheep and made him the shepherd of Jacob, his people, and of Israel, his chosen nation. David cared for them with pure motives. He led them with skill. Many of the qualifications you see here are what Paul reiterates in the New Testament for elders and deacons of the church. The Lord is looking to raise up someone after his own heart, as we're going to see. Saul blew it, and Saul never ultimately fulfilled what the Lord expected. Well, this will rattle Samuel's cage, right? What does he do? Look at verse 2. So Samuel replies, how can I go? <laughs> Are you kidding? Saul hears this, and I'm toast. Samuel knows Saul. Saul, I mean, this is an indictment on Saul's character. Now, let me help you out here a little bit. Uh, I love maps, and this is a map. The greenish territory, excuse me, no, the yellowish territory was Saul's uh, kingdom. The green will be David's, and then Solomon will add that little reddish portion up to the top. Now, I'm not going to quiz you over this. I don't expect you to be able to see all this. The focus of our story here in 1 Samuel 16 is in that red circle. But you need to see this. I, I think this is so important. Samuel's hometown is Ramah. That's where he's located right now in this event. He's told to go to Bethlehem 10 miles away. Notice what town he's got to go through as he goes through that coastal highway. <laughs> he has got to go through Saul's hometown. No wonder he's scared spitless. Bethlehem? You got to be kidding. No way. God, I'm not doing that. You don't understand what you're asking me to do. And what does the Lord tell Samuel? Look at the text. It says, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. You say, well, that's a little deceptive, isn't it? Well, certainly the Lord is protecting Samuel, but let's not forget that the Lord at times will veil his intentions. God is not above, I would argue, using deception when it is used to judge rebels as a form of punishment. Certainly the Lord is a God of truth whose word is reliable, but he well may deceive the, his enemies when they have by their actions forfeited the right to know truth. Let me give you a New Testament example. In 2 Thessalonians 2, when the Antichrist comes, it says, consequently, God sends on them a deluding influence 
so they will believe what is false. The sad commentary here is that God says, fine. Saul, you have rejected me, and now you will reap the consequences of it. Romans 1 is clear. You keep tampering with God and playing with him. The worst thing that could happen is the Lord to say, fine, have at it. Here's your sin, enjoy it. Because you're going to reap the consequences. And we see the, the re response from the Lord here. Well, we see Samuel, he does this in verse 4. And Samuel did what the Lord told him. And when he arrived to, to Bethlehem, the elders of the city threw out a huge reception party. No, it says they were scared spitless. For some of you, you, you've shared with me, when corporate headquarters sends delegates to your regional office, they're not there to hand out stickers. <laughs> it is it's a, a little bit tense, is it not? when someone from corporate headquarters comes. Samuel's made two other appearances in this book, and in both times, he's pronounced judgment. So if your little town called Bethlehem, who is off the radar, and the prophet and judge Samuel comes, you better believe you're scared spitless. Can we help you? What's going on here? Well, the fear to me is very legit. They do have the right to ask, uh, can we help? What's going on? Do you come in peace or are you here to judge us? He says, no, I'm here to sacrifice. It's interesting, sacrifice, the term occurs five times in this little section. And I thought, how fitting, because when Saul was picked, I mean, there were no sacrifices. There was no, hey, let's pray about this. Not this time. This is vastly different. This will be centered on worshiping the Lord and honoring him first. And when it comes to decision making for us as followers of Jesus, it needs to start with sacrifice. And what I mean by that is prayer in the word, walking in holiness. I had an elderly professor who often would say, hey, the Lord wants you to do his will more than you do. So just trust him, look to him. And that's the idea here is it's bathed in prayer, it's bathed in sacrifice, and it's also fulfilling what the Lord had requested. And I love Samuel. He's wasted no time. Because you notice in verse 6, look what the text tells us. Uh, um, it says, when they arrived, Samuel noticed, he noticed the oldest son, Eliab. And he, he says to himself, ah, that must be the one. So he's already scoping this out, you know. It, it, it's like a, a mother of a, 25-year-old single guy, you know, she's just, you know, oh, there's, there's a good spouse for that, uh, you know, they're scoping this out, which is not good, I know, I'm just, but here's this text, and, and Samuel is looking, and he's making the same problem the Israelites made earlier, is he not? He, he's looking, and, and remember in first, uh, nine two of 1 Samuel, it says, not a, a man among the people of Israel were more handsome than Saul. And Samuel comes to the scene, and he makes the same problem here, because later the text tells us, the Lord says, hey, I'm not looking for someone who is externally great. I'm looking for the internals, the heart. And that's the problem we have here. Samuel might be leading the worship service, but he isn't in tune with the one they are to worship. That is the Lord. Which is, again, sad commentary even on Samuel. 
It's interesting. He's looking for the, the ones that are the strongest, the tallest. And we see three names mentioned here of the sons of the seven brothers of David. The, these three are also mentioned later. They're the ones who are in battle. They're the ones who, who go with the Israelites to fight the Philistines. So Saul, Samuel sees that. He goes, wow, those are all great warriors. It's hard to think outside the box, isn't it, when it comes to looking to what the Lord might have. I can still remember a former student who, uh, he had it all together. Bright, outgoing, loved by his classmates. Huge, what I thought was huge potential. He was arrested, and it all came crashing down. <laughs> Can't see the heart. God can. And that's why in verse 7, the Lord says to Samuel, don't be impressed by Elab's appearance or his height. I have rejected him. He does, God does not view things the way people do. I love that rendering. People look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That is, the heart is the emotions. It's where reason sits and conscience in other words, the Lord is able to probe the innermost being of an individual. And it's key to the whole book. Some scholars will argue that this rendering here should be that God is choosing David simply because of his own heart. That is, it has nothing to do about David. But that doesn't fit with 1 Samuel's. The whole theme of 1 Samuel is having a heart for the Lord. I would argue what's one scholar states to say something about David's character is tantamount to saying something about God's character. And so much as David is the person whom God viewed who was suitable for the role to be anointed. And so the principle there in your notes, if you're following along, is the Lord desires that his people have a pure heart and rewards those who possess godly inner character. I love the reference from Psalm 147.10. Psalm 147.10 says, God is not enamored with the strength of a horse, nor is he impressed by a warrior's strong legs. The Lord takes delight in his faithful followers and those who wait for his loyal love. <laughs> Samuel's falling into the same trap the Israelites fell into and... The Lord says, no, 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 Samuel. That's, that's not what this is about. Remember, what did I tell you in verse 1? I'm selecting a king for myself, not for you. Ultimately, the people benefit, but it's for the Lord. In prophetic untimeliness, a challenge to the idol of relevance, Os Guinness writes, the faith world of John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, and he lists a whole bunch, Hudson Taylor, Charles Spurgeon. He said it's disappearing. In place, a new evangelicalism is arriving in which therapeutic self-concern overshadows knowing God. Spirituality displaces theology. Marketing triumphs over mission. Opinion polls outweigh reliance on biblical exposition. Concerns for power and relevance are more obvious than concern for piety and faithfulness. The Lord is not looking for the latest fad, the trendy show, but he's looking for men and women who have a mind for Christ. So young people, <laughs> the Lord ultimately is concerned, what are you doing with him? 
Where's your heart? 2 Corinthians 2 says we are to have the mind of Christ. means that we are to share in his plans, his purpose, his perspective. And it's something that all believers, young and old, should possess. In order to have the mind of Christ, one must have a faith in Christ. That's where it starts. After salvation, the believer then lives a life under God's influence. It's where the Holy Spirit indwells, it enlightens, it leads, it infuses wisdom. And that's where the mind of Christ comes. And the believer bears a responsibility to yield to the Spirit's leading and to allow the Spirit to transform and renew. This is whom David or God is looking for, and David fits the description of which God is looking for. Well, verses 8 through 10, you've got these three sons coming out, and each time God tells Samuel, nope, nope, nope. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but if I was Samuel, I'd be a little sweating bullets at this point. I mean, you know, here we, we've brought these out, and, and in verse 10, I love, it's almost out of frustration. Uh, he says, Jesse presents the seven sons, and Samuel says to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. <laughs> you got to be kidding. What I love about Samuel at this point is he does not throw in the towel. He could have easily said, Lord, I trusted you. I risked my life going through Gibeah to get down to, to Bethlehem. I appear as a babbling fool in front of all these people because I said you're going you're to have one of his sons be king. No, no, no. Samuel does not question the Lord. He questions Jesse. He says, this can't be all you have. Why? Because Samuel trusted the Lord. Samuel understood what God had told him in verse 4. That is, I will tell you which one it is. So Lord, I'm going to trust you in this. And just when you wonder in the world how the Lord is going to accomplish something, he does, doesn't he? He's faithful to his word. I love that Samuel, he said, we're not going anywhere. Did you see that in the text? This is so good. And you just got to smile as you read this. And, and when he says, no, there's the youngest one, he's still taking care of the flock. Samuel said to Jesse, send him and get him. Now remember, he's not in the house He's not in another room. He's not at the playground, right? He's taking care of the flock. He's out in the fields. This is going to take a while. And what does Samuel say to Jesse? Sin and get him, for we cannot turn our attention to any other thing until he comes back. So can you imagine? Here's all the sons sitting around. You didn't get it, did you? No, I didn't either. So they're all just sitting around waiting. Jesse's like, I can't believe this. Oh, my oldest son, I mean, he's got it really together, Samuel. I, they're all just sitting there waiting. David? Of course, it begs the question, why didn't Jesse have David there to begin with? Right? Was he, oh, not David, he's so young, inexperienced, I would have never dreamed, did it not cross his mind? Or is it that Jesse's got a problem showing favoritism to the oldest? I, mean, I don't know, the text doesn't tell us. We can speculate. But one thing we know is he wasn't there when the first seven marched through in front of Samuel. David is the youngest of the eight sons. He is a Bethlehemite, Bethlehemite, which means he's from the tribe of Judah. And we know from the book of Ruth that Ruth 
That Moabite is David's great-grandmother, so great lineage, and we know it. We're told here that David is a shepherd. We know he's brave, and according to the text, uh, he's reddish, which is only used of Esau, which means he may have red hair. We don't know, but we're also told that he has attractive eyes and is handsome, which seems strange when all along we've just said looks don't matter. You know, we're, we're looking at the heart, and then all of a sudden it says he's really attractive. I don't know about you. I, I looked at that several times in the text. I go, what? Well, <clears throat> there's a couple ways we can explain this. It could be symbolism, because beautiful eyes in the Near Eastern world indicated someone who was honest. So we could be saying, no, this is an honest kid. And, and the beauty could simply mean God's favor is resting on him. So that's one way to do it. Some have argued, no, this is a foreboding because the attractive term is used later of Bathsheba. Mm, we'll get to her later. That could be, it could be simply that he's a young kid. He's not even, has acne yet. I mean, he's just a little kid. He's not rugged, rough, tough, a candidate for king. I mean, he doesn't fit. I mean, we don't know. The text doesn't say. But what I love is, God is so creative. Is he not? <laughs> David does not have a resume, a cabinet full of trophies, or a list of military successes. Now think about through Scripture. The Lord used Abel over Cain. The Lord selected Isaac, not Esau. The Lord used Joseph, not his other 11 brothers, to save the Israelites. He used a Moabite, Ruth. The Lord selected Josiah, a young boy king, to bring the nation back to the Lord. He used a cupbearer to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He used a tax collector, a revolutionist, and a no-name fisherman to be counted among the twelve. He even used a murderer and a so-called good-doer to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And guess what? He uses us to be ambassadors for the gospel. I don't know about you, but you should take great comfort. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, he has called you, as we saw in the book of Jude. He's called you, just like he did David. The Lord isn't concerned about how talented or untalented you are, or how put together you are, or all the list of the accomplishments. He desires a heart that's faithful to him. Give me 12 individuals who have a heart for God and will turn the world upside down. That's the idea here. God didn't care about all these other things. He's looking for a heart, as verse 7 says, and it's key to the text. And I love verse 13. What does the text tell us? So Jesse brought him in. We see the description, and the Lord says, go and anoint him. This is the one. Wow. This is the one. <laughs> the morning that was there with Samuel is now turned to joy, gladness. So here's the deliverer that we've longed for. And Samuel took that horn full of olive oil and anointed him, and notice the text, in the presence of the brothers. Jesse's not even mentioned. The brothers are. But we all know how siblings are. <laughs> Just remember the story of Joseph. And you say, oh, I think you're being a little hard on Elab and Abinadab and Shammah. Careful, because later when David goes to fight Goliath, 
one of the brothers has some very harsh words to David. God knew, and it was a, st a testimony to the brothers, careful, this one is whom I have anointed. This one is the one I have called, not you. The text tells us that the spirit rushes on upon him. This is extremely significant. If you know Christ as your savior, the spirit serves as a down payment for your salvation. It's a permanent indwelling in the New Testament era. In the Old Testament, the spirit could come and go. That's why later when David blows it in sin, he says, the Lord, don't take your spirit from me. There's a fear it'll be removed. But it's extremely significant because what it tells us is there's been a shift in the text. Saul and now David. In fact, if you don't think so, look at the next verse. So Jesse had him brought in, or excuse me, verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord had turned away from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Wow, what a contrast. It sets the scene for this, the rest of First and Second Samuel. David has the spirit of the Lord. Evil spirit could be also just a reference to judgment, but either way, Saul's done. So in 1029 BC, David is anointed as king. It will take 18 years before he takes the throne. 18. It's great training ground. And we're going to watch David's life. David has some glorious moments, and he's got some real bummers, and we'll get to those as well. The text does not sugarcoat the life of David. <laughs> but in the process, you're going to see a man who's, who is passionate about being dedicated to the Lord, and that is why many see verses 13 and 14 as the, the transition and climax of the entire book. Historically, literarily, theologically, it's the crux of, of First and Second Samuel is verse 13 and verse 14. The principle here is godly character is the foundation of good leadership. Samuel Bringle, who was a leader in the Salvation Army in the late 1800s and early 1900s, a graduate of DePaul University in Greencastle, uh, surprise, surprise, he makes this statement, spiritual leadership is not won by promotion, but by prayers and tears. It is attained by such heart searching and humility before God, by self-surrender, a courageous sacrifice of every idol, a bold, uncompromising, and uncomplaining embracing of the cross, and by an eternal, unfaltering looking into Jesus crucified. It's the kind of leaders that God is looking for, men and women, 8, 18, 80. The Lord is looking for individuals who are saying, yeah, I, I want to be passionate about you. I want to be used by you. Samuel, Jesse, and even David could never have realized what just transpired in Bethlehem. <laughs> it will take another thousand years and Bethlehem will come on the scene again in Matthew 1 or 2 it says we found the savior of the world the descendant of David being born in Bethlehem Jesus Christ our Lord the problem with first impressions or with the point of view for humans is that we can't always see the big picture 
and what occurred in little Bethlehem as Jesse's brother's jaws were no doubt to the ground as the oil was dripping down off of David's head. This is the one. And the Lord knew as he saw the big picture that someday his own son, a descendant of David, will be reigning and will reign in eternity. <laughs> so this morning, if you're struggling, struggling seeing out of the crud, take heart, the Lord knows. The Lord took a young boy who was faithfully shepherding sheep in the fields a young man who had a heart for God and used David to feel, fulfill his plan. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It's fitting that we have communion this morning because as we come to communion, and hopefully you've received uh, one of these. If not, we've got some ushers delivering these cups and juices Perhaps this morning, your impressions of Christianity aren't really good. You've had colleagues or family members who've tried to push the Jesus stuff down, and they are the most hypocritical people you've ever met. And so the idea of Christianity, no, I don't think so. That's great for you. I'm here this morning because someone invited me, or I'm so-and-so's child. <laughs> but I, I really don't care about the Christian stuff. Careful. Turn your eyes off of human beings and look to the Lord. Take a serious look at the son of David, that is Jesus Christ, who he is, why he did what he did, his love for you, his willingness to die for you. We're entering what we call communion. It's one of the only two ordinances of the church. One is baptism, the other is communion. Both are looking to what Christ accomplished. In believer's baptism, you're identifying with Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection. Here, we're remembering what he's done for us. For those of us who've placed our faith in Christ, ones who have been called, we're expected to have hearts that are walking in holiness, seeking hard after the things of the Lord. You read this, the accounts of David, they are convicting. <laughs> Here's a young kid who is faithful to the Lord. And your heart is, is moved, it's challenged. Samuel had seen so much crud, even in his own kids, and yet he sees this young man, and it's a vast difference to what he has encountered at this point. So let's spend some time with the Lord this morning. If you don't know Christ as your savior, this is for those of us who know Christ first thing you need to do is yield your life to him. Come to recognize that you need a savior. The sin in your life is not going to be dealt with unless you yield it to him. Recognizing he died on a cross. For those of us who know Christ, this is a good opportunity. Just take a few minutes and make sure the heart is clean. So let's do that. Let's spend a few minutes.
God does not view the things the way the people do. The Lord tells Samuel, but he looks at the heart. Lord, first we want to thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die on a cross and that you called us before the foundation of the world, those who've placed their faith in you. And that we're being kept for the day when the son of David, our savior, your son, Jesus Christ, will return. And we rejoice. And Lord, we want hearts that are in tune with you. Hearts that are marked by the filling of the Spirit. Hearts that reflect your glory. Forgive us when we fall short. And Lord, thank you. Thank you, as was prayed earlier, for the forgiveness that is granted. All because of what your son accomplished at Calvary. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul recounts that upper room, the ordinance that was laid out by Christ that night. And he says, you know that Bethlehemite, that descendant of David, our Savior Jesus, when he, he says, when he passed, passed it on to me, I'm going to pass it on to you, he said, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he, he took the bread, and after he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, Paul tells us. And the Lord says, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this every time you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the body that was broken and the blood that was spilled. For you, the spotless lamb, your son, paid that price for us, and we rejoice.